Okay, we're going to uh, begin a series this week, uh, as was mentioned already, kind of a, a drilling down. What we're going to do is drill down a little bit more than we have, maybe in the past, on aspects of the cross, what it's accomplished, what it, what it, what it accomplished in our lives. And we're going to do that uh, kind of, it's, I guess what you would call this then is a topical sermon, because there are various things, or topical series, I should say, because there's various things that Jesus' death on the cross accomplished, and we're going to look at each of those things kind of in depth over the next few weeks. And what we're looking at this time, this morning, is we're looking at how Jesus was a ransom for sin. What does it mean that Jesus was a ransom for sin? What did Jesus accomplish as a ransom for sin? And so I invite you to turn in your Bible, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, or if you have neither of those, you can also just turn to the uh, page in the bulletin that has our scripture reading for this morning. It's Mark chapter 10. This is verses 35 to 45. We're going to read these 11 verses, but then we're going to look only at one verse. (laughs) Uh, We're going to really drill down into verse 45, but I encourage you to listen to the whole reading and don't just wait for the final verse. This is Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's God's word. Okay, so um, when you talk to people who uh, maybe aren't religious, uh, don't know much about Christianity, or even if they sometimes do know, know something about Christianity but uh, are confused about Christianity, they, they have problems with it. And it'll be stuff like you'll hear they have a problem with the idea that, that there's evil and suffering in the world, but there's a good God apparently who loves us and cares for us that's hard to wrap their head around, and that's completely understandable. They have problems with the idea of hell and judgment. Uh, They have problems with the idea uh, of Christians being represented. And these are things that make it hard sometimes for people to believe the gospel, accept the gospel, uh, and um, live out of the gospel. So they're kind of objections. Now, there's one objection that people have to Christianity that you may not hear as often because it doesn't pop up in conversation as much, but is, I would say, equally a problem. And that's actually the crucifixion itself. When you look at the crucifixion, if you think about it, if you haven't, like, you gotta, if you have been a believer all your life, if you were raised, what I mean is you're raised in a Christian home, you have been taught the Bible since you were a kid, all that kind of stuff, 
you got to understand what it's like for someone who has none of that background to them, it looks utterly bizarre. You got this guy carrying this piece of wood and people are whipping him and he's all bloody and stuff and then they nail him to this thing and they stick him up there and he hangs like this and, and Christians are saying, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened in the world. And they say, what? What are you talking about? The crucifixion looks like this bloody, barbaric, ancient practice. And here we are in modern 21st century and you Christians talk about it like it was a great thing. And that's, that's bizarre to them. So what we're going to do over the next little while is we're going to explain again the reason for the cross. Why did Jesus die on the cross? What are the things that had to happen? What are the things that accomplished, that needed to be accomplished, that were only accomplished because Jesus died on the cross? And today, we're going to focus kind of on the one of the biggies, well, we're, you know what, we're, they're all biggies, so I shouldn't say one of the biggies. Um, we're going to focus on what Mark records here in Mark chapter 10, where, where Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We're going we're gonna to clear up some misunderstanding about, hopefully, about the cross that, that people have, and we're hopefully going to also see uh, uh, the core of what Jesus came to do when he died on the cross as, it, as it's encapsulated in this word ransom. And if you need a, a, an outline, there's an outline on the back of the bulletin that you can follow. And if you have questions, think about them, write them down during the sermon. Hopefully by the end, you'll have time to ask a question or two if you so desire. So here we go. We're just going to we're going to unpack this verse. We're going to unpack this phrase. The Son of Man came not to serve, but to be, or not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here we go. First phrase. What does it mean for Jesus to come and die on the cross? He says he came to give his life. Now stop right there. You're like, really? Three words? Yeah. Three words. There's a lot in these three words. He came to give his life. Remember, people say the crucifixion is this barbaric ancient practice of weird pagan religions and now Christianity kind of appropriated it. Maybe you know a little bit about this from, from your own education. Uh, Greek mythology, uh, you may have heard of the story of uh, the War of Troy, right? So uh, Agamemnon, bleh, I never get his name right, I don't know how to say his name well. Uh, my son is probably just shaking his head because he, he, he knows how to say all that kind of stuff. But anyhow, um, so he was going to take the Athenians to Troy to attack Troy, to get Helen back because Helen was stolen by Paris, right? Anyhow, he's, you know, I'm sure you guys all know this from your, your education. Anyhow, so he wants, to, he wants to sail to Troy, but he can't get there because Athena, the god Athena, is angry with him, and so she's got, uh, she's, she's got winds blowing against his sails. And so the only way that he can get to Troy is if he sacrifices his daughter uh, in order to appease uh, Athena, and then he can sail to Troy. And people, there's stories like that all over ancient, the ancient world, okay? That a sacrifice is required to appease an angry God. And people say that's, that's pagan, that's, that's old-fashioned, that's weird thinking, and that's basically what the cross is about. But the reality is, is that's not true. There is a huge, huge difference between the death of Jesus and the death of Agamemnon's bleh, daughter. And it's this. See, this 
the, the cross of Jesus Christ is self-sacrifice. And self-sacrifice, everyone agrees, is the highest form of love in existence. You see, Jesus says, it says that the Son of Man came to give His life. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. He is the second person of the Trinity, clothed in humanity. He is, he is human. He, you can touch Him. You can, he looks like us. He talks like us. He walks around like us. But He is God Himself. And He willingly offered Himself as this sacrifice. That's why it says that He came. I came. I wasn't dragged. I wasn't, I, nobody came and knocked me over the head and dragged me off to be sacrificed, I willingly brought myself to this place. And we might say, well, that sounds kind of weird, self-sacrifice, the highest form of love, but is it really that weird? If you think about it? If you're familiar with Lord of the Rings, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, people say, well, yeah, but that's by Christian authors and it's kind of Christian literature or whatever. Okay, Harry Potter. What did Harry Potter do? He willingly sacrificed himself to save everybody from Lord Voldemort. I'm not afraid to say his name. You ever watch The Matrix? The first Hunger Games. What does Katniss do when she sees Prim is going to be sent to the, uh, to the Hunger Games? She offers herself as tribute. She willingly offers herself in, that, in the place of her sister. And that gets us. It always sucks us in. Why? Because it's one of the greatest themes in all of literature, in all of history, because deep down in our hearts, we know that voluntary self-sacrifice for another is the highest form of love in existence. Every parent knows that. All real love, all real love is self-sacrificial love. Parents are constantly sacrificing themselves for their kids. And if they don't, if a parent refuses to sacrifice themselves for their kid, that kid will grow up completely messed up. We all know that. I'm not going to unpack that any longer because we all know that deep inside. Some of us had parents like that, and we have been messed up by it. Well, God is the most loving being in all of existence, and he offers himself in the person of Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for us, as a substitute for us. That's not barbaric. That's love. Love was the motive behind the death of Jesus on the cross. That's, that's the first point. The second point, though, is, okay, why? Voluntary self-sacrifice. Jesus voluntarily self-sacrificed. Why did he do that? What was the reason for that? And Jesus goes on to explain that, and he says... He says, he, he gives himself as a ransom, as a ransom. Jesus dying on the cross was a ransom. Well, what in the earth does that mean? It's a particular word in the original language that has a very specific connotation and, or definition. And what it is is this, it's to buy a slave's freedom, to buy someone out of captivity at a, at a huge cost. At an, at an ultimate cost, okay? And Jesus Christ says, when he says, I came to give my, my life as a ransom, what he's saying is, is my life was the cost to free you and me from captivity. Now here's a teaching of scripture that you'll find from the very beginning all the way to the very end, and it's this. 
We are slaves. That's what the Bible says. And again, this sounds weird. Slaves? What do you mean human beings are slaves? Well, the Bible says that we are slaves to various things. We're slaves, first of all, to ourself. Paul talks about this in Timothy. We're slaves to ourself. Well, what does that mean? It means you are a terrible taskmaster. Do you know how hard you are on yourself? You always think you're not measuring up or you're always thinking about your failures. You're always uh, thinking about the areas where you're not what you think you ought to be. You're incredibly self-absorbed and incredibly kind of uh, uh, focused on yourself. You're either spending your time self-pitying yourself or, or loathing yourself or aggrandizing yourself. We're preoccupied with ourselves. We're self-absorbed. We're slaves to ourselves. That's what the Bible says. But the Bible also says we're slaves to idols. We take all these good things in our lives and we turn them into ultimate things. We think that if, if I have great health, then I've got a good life. Or if I have great relationships, if I'm really getting along great with my girlfriend or with my, my husband or, or with my family or whatever, as long as that, that world, that part of my life is going along well, well, then, then I'm okay. Or some of us, it's our bank accounts. As long as I've got enough in it, I'll be fine. We're slaves to all these good things that we turn into ultimate things. But what the Bible says is it all boils down to one thing, whether, you, whether it's you, yourself, or the idols in your life, the Bible says that really we're all slaves to sin. We're all slaves to sin, and the, and the flip side of that is, is that we're all what's called under law. We're slaves to sin because we're all under law, and because we're under law, we become slaves to sin. Now, we're chained. We're chained to both of those things. And, and you might say to yourself, wait a minute, I don't feel like I'm chained to anything. This sounds just weird to me, but, but here's the thing. Let me ask you this. Can a corpse, if it has all kinds of chains weighing it down, does a corpse say, oh, that's heavy? No, right? Because the corpse can't feel the chains. Well, the Bible says that, that ultimately we are spiritually dead until God, through the Holy Spirit, speaks to you like perhaps I'm speaking to you this morning or perhaps you hear as you read the Bible and you, have, you, you dare to open it and read it and study it or perhaps through a friend who's sitting across the coffee table from you and says, now I want to tell you something that you think is crazy but I really believe is true. It's this, you and I are slaves to sin because the Bible tells me so and you, your eyes are opened up to that. I just hit myself in the face, that was stupid. Until your eyes are opened up to that and that, that, that truth dawns on you, you are what the Bible calls dead in your sin. You won't feel it. You won't know it's a problem. And nevertheless, it is a problem. This is what, I'm just telling you what the Bible teaches. You may can disagree with it all you want, but this is what the Bible teaches. We're chained to this thing called sin. We're slaves to this thing called sin. Look, it doesn't matter if you're religious or not religious. It doesn't matter what religion you come from. You can come from the east. You can come from the west. You can come from the north. You can come from the south. It doesn't matter. Every one of us knows deep down in our soul that there is a universal moral law of some sort on a basic level that we all have to obey. Look at the golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do to you. You will find it in Confucianism, you will find it in Buddhism, you will find it in Hinduism, you will find it in Islam, you will find it in Judaism, you will find it in Christianity. You will find it in the vast majority of secular atheist people. 
Nobody disagrees that we should do unto others as they would have them do unto us. Well, let me, let me encourage you to try something sometime. Before you go to bed, as you're laying in bed at night and thinking about falling asleep, just take a few moments to recount your day and ask yourself, did I do unto others as I would have had them do unto me? Did I fulfill that law the way I should? Did I pursue the needs and concerns and, and, and wants of other people in my life with the same kind of energy and vigor and determination that I pursued the needs and concerns and wants in my own life? I mean, if we're honest, every one of us is going to say, no way. I break that law every hour. You're guilty. And you know it. See, Jesus says, you break the law, you're guilty. You know, psychologists will tell you that each one of us, deep down, strangely enough, we, we feel like we should be perfect. You talk to a child whose parents have been divorced, and they will think that it's their fault. They'll think that they're bad, that they did something to cause this. You talk to a little child that, that, that's parents die, and they think that it's their fault, that somehow they failed, somehow they blew it. Or you talk to a child whose parents are very neglectful and distant, you know, a father who had lived very little time or interest in their kid, and the kid initially will think that it's their fault, that there's something wrong with them, that if they could just change themselves, somehow that relationship would be different. Why is that? And we would say, well, because they're young and because they're foolish and because they don't understand. But here's the thing, they grow up, and they become perfectionists and workaholics and addicts and they become all messed up and you can go to therapists and they can tell you this is unreasonable, irrational and you shouldn't think this way but the fact of the matter is that doesn't change it because it's deep down inside of us. It doesn't go away. For some of us, it sits very close under the surface. You don't have to scratch very hard and boom, it explodes. And for many of us, we have found ways to keep it at bay through distraction, through binge-watching Netflix, through working out like crazy, through working like crazy, through being the best parent we could possibly be, and through any other host of other, other things that we do. We carry this guilt because we know we don't love God and we don't love others the way we should. And someone might say, look, nice try, preacher man. Um, I know I'm messed up. I know I've screwed up. I know I'm not perfect, but I believe that to err is human uh, and to forgive is divine. And I know that I'm not a mess. I'm not a, I'm not a slave because I'm not a rapist. I am a, not a murderer, etc. And, and, and the Bible says, well, you don't know yourself well enough. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if you look on a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. On the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if you hate someone in your heart, you have committed murder. And you and I say, well, how can that possibly be? That's not as bad as murder. But what Jesus is saying is, is where do you think rape and murder come from? Where does it start? It starts with the desires of the heart. 
The heart is lustful and the heart acts out in rape or the heart is hateful and the heart acts out in murder. And you say, well, I've never done any of that. No, but Jesus' point is, is that, that the potential lies in your heart. It is latent within you. The potential to do that, to be that. Just like you take an acorn and you look at that acorn and you say, well, that's a little thing. How can that little thing turn into that? And you point to the massive oak tree on King Street just before you go up the Greensville Hill by my house. Fisher's Mill Park. Go drive by there today and look at that honking tree. That is one majestic tree. And you think, that came from this little acorn. And how is that possible, you say? Well, it's possible if it's under the right conditions and it has the right nourishment and and all that kind of stuff. It can grow into that. Most acorns don't grow into that. But within every acorn is the potential for an entire forest of oak trees. And the Bible says that's your heart. Thank God that the evil within my heart has not, has not made or, or accomplished its potential. I, you know, I, my perfect illustration of this, I remember when I was a teenager, I was at a party, and uh, some girl to her boyfriend said that I had said something to her, which I hadn't said, but anyhow, this guy was older guy, not a particularly big guy, but a really rough and tumble kind of guy, and I'm, I'll admit, I'm kind of a wimp, like I'm a lover, not a fighter, you know? Um, and this guy came up to me and he put his hands under the scruff of my neck and he slammed me up against a wall and he started berating me and threatening, threatening me and I was like, whoa, no, don't hurt me, please. And I got away from it sort of unscathed, but I remember going home that night and as I relived that moment over and over in my mind, I beat the tar out of this guy six ways from Sunday. And I just thought to myself, if I was bigger and stronger and new kung fu, I would ruin you. And as I've reflected on it, I don't know why God has given me such clarity about that memory, but as I reflect on that memory, I think, my goodness, what I wanted to do to him was so much beyond what he did to me. And I don't think I'm all that different from you. I, you know, if you're going to leave here today and go, whoa, that guy's nuts. I'm not coming back. Okay. But my prayer and hope would be that you could see in this story just a little bit of yourself. We're guilty. And we, we try to ignore it. We try to sweep it under the carpet, but we can't. And we can't deal with it. We cannot deal with it. And I think we know that too. One of the great stories is the story of Macbeth, right? Macbeth, he kills Duncan so that he can become king of Scotland and his wife helps hatch the plan and, and when they execute it, his wife, she's just racked with guilt and she's wiping her hand constantly saying, out damned spot, out damned spot because she's got this, this spot on her hand and Macbeth actually calls the doctor in. This is on the front of your bulletin, uh, the quote there. He calls the doctor in and he, he points to his wife and he says, doctor, cure her of that. Canst thou not minister to a mind diseased? Pluck from the memory a rooted soul raised out the written troubles of the brain and with some sweet oblivious antidote cleanse the stuffed bosom of that perilous stuff which weighs upon the heart heal her she's going crazy with guilt and this is Macbeth's doctor's response therein the patient must minister to himself 
You know, human beings cannot remove the guilt. One person cannot take the guilt out from another. Why? Because sin is a debt. Sin is a debt. Every time we commit sin, we actually incur a kind of debt. Now, follow me, please. This is hugely important. If you and I are going to meet for dinner and I forget and I don't show up, you're sitting in the restaurant and you text me and you say, where are you? And I say, sorry, I totally forgot. I can't make it. You're, you're out two hours. I just used up two hours of your time. I'm in your debt. There's a debt there. And if you borrow my car and you crash it and, uh, and it's going to cost $4,000 to fix, now there's a debt incurred there. But each one of us knows that deep down in our soul that, that we have committed sins, we have racked up debt against others that we do not have the ability to pay. You know, the Humboldt tragedy has just been caused a lot of reflection for me and for, for my wife and I. We've talked about it and probably for a lot of you, you're trying to wrestle with it and how did this happen? And, and we were watching the CBC the other day and Susan Ormiston was doing a story and I quote, she said, people want to know what happened and who will pay. What a question, eh? Who will pay? And many people want to say, well, the trucker. If the trucker's guilty, let's say he did something wrong. Maybe he was checking a text. You ever do that? Your eyes go off the road just for a split second because you checked a text because of a notification. How's he going to pay? Little mistake, big mistake, huge consequences here regardless. How is he going to pay? How is he going to pay? And how is he going to deal with his guilt? How do you live through that? The truth is we can't pay. But in this text, God is saying through Jesus Christ, I can. I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. You see, the blood of Jesus Christ is infinitely valuable. It's the blood of God. Jesus says, you're all sinners. You're all sinners to varying degrees. Some of you are big sinners, some of you are little sinners, but every single one of you is a sinner who has committed a capital offense. You all deserve death because of the death, because of the debt you... It's like those people who use their credit card constantly and then they, they refuse to check the bill when it comes, you know? The, the, the MasterCard bill comes and they say, ooh, MasterCard bill, throw that in the recycling com container. And it's not because they bought, some, they bought some outrageous purchase. It's the little things. It's the little bit of bitterness that you, that you hold against someone who, who, who slights you. It's being a little bit stingy when there's a call to generosity and, you're, and you like hold something back and, and, and it's a little bit of lustfulness. You know, you just flirt with the, with the, the pictures on the, on the internet or it's a little bit of jealousy as you look at someone whose life you think is a little bit better or it's a little bit of lying, you know, like, oh yeah, we couldn't make church today because all the kids were sick or whatever and you, you just, you make stuff up. Sorry, if you've ever done that. 
gotcha. But the thing is, is all this little stuff, you're building debt, you're building debt, you're building debt. Some of you, that's not your problem. You're not, you're not building debt in a small way. But, but for many of us, you're building debt in a small way, but the guilt is lurking underneath. So you try to bury it, you try to ignore it, you try to rename it, you try to deal with it in all kinds of ways, but it's still there. Some of you, you built your debt spectacularly, and, it's, and in a way, it's almost, a, it's almost a grace of God. You made such a train wreck of your life that you cannot hide the debt And so you, I'm talking to you, and you're like, amen, hallelujah, I believe in the ransom, and I praise God for it. But see, our problem is most of us aren't messed up enough by our lives to know that we're in such debt. But we are. And you can't pay. And Jesus said, I will pay. I will pay the ransom. Last thing he says is, I came to be served, to, to serve, not to be served, and to give my life as a ransom for whom? For many. What does that mean? Hard edge of the gospel, friends. What he means by that is, is it's not for everyone. It's for many, but he didn't say it's for everyone. He didn't come to give his life as a ransom for everybody. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Who's the many? The many is the believer. The many is the one who says, I I know I'm guilty. I know that I have built a debt that I cannot pay, that I've been a slave to sin. My selfish desires, my idols, I know it, but I but I see Jesus on the cross and I see him paying that for me. And you know, I know know this is an exclusive sounding gospel and I know that this is very unpopular in today's world. People say, well, that sounds so stinking narrow-minded. What about about all these other people? What about people who are, look, Christianity is great. You Christians are doing good things. That's great. And you're believing that stuff. That's great. But there are decent people from all kinds of other religions out there who are sincere, who are humble, who are good, it is so narrow-minded for you to say that heaven is basically, and forgiveness is basically just for these people who believe in Jesus Christ. But let me ask you a question. Why would God put up his son as a ransom if there was any other way? If you can be free any other way, then that means that Jesus' death on the cross, it, it's, it's an option, and it was nice, but it wasn't totally necessary. Look, if you and I are walking along the street, and, and we're good friends, and we're walking along the street, and I turn to you and I say, let me show you just how much I love you, and I dive out in front of an oncoming bus, and I get killed, will you say to yourself, oh, what a display of love for me? Or would you say, Oh, I didn't know you were, he was so unstable. I wish I could have stopped him. But if we're walking along the street and you step out to cross to go to, to detour and a bus is barreling along and you don't see it coming and I dive out in front of, behind you and I push you out of the way and then I get hit by the bus, then what do you say? Oh, he must have loved me. Voluntary self-sacrifice to save me. 
See, if, if you think that this idea is too exclusive, friends, you don't, really, you don't really grasp, with all due respect, you don't really grasp that there was no other way. If there was any other way, why would Jesus, how could God, a loving God, actually send his son to experience that? Look at the cost to ransom you, to pay your debt. If you think I don't understand how Christianity can be so exclusive, you're not seeing the debt. You're not seeing how impossibly big it was. But if you do, if you do, listen, it will melt your heart. The glory of the cross will completely undo you. Because what it says is, is that you are loved beyond your wildest dreams, that when God looked at you and he saw you building up the debt, he said, I gotta have them. I gotta have her. I cannot carry on without them. I refuse to carry on without them. I delight in them. They are mine. I have chosen them from before the world even began. And I will do whatever it takes to make them mine. And when you look at the cross, you see Jesus with your name on his lips and with your life in his heart as he took God's judgment on sin for you and you are undone by it and you are changed by it and you are galvanized by it that's the ransom that's what it means let's pray God thank you for sending Jesus to pay that debt for us no matter how long we've known you as our Savior, we just don't know the depths of it. It is too wonderful for us to, to bear. Father, impress upon us just how amazing the death of Jesus actually is. Yeah, it's violent and it's bloody, but it's beautiful. Help us to see that, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.